0: This weekend is the first weekend of what could be the most important month in the 47 year history of Crossroads as we undertake what we are calling revision. It's right there on the front of your worship bulletin. The objective is to renew our identity as disciples of Jesus and to recast our vision as a disciple making church in our community and in the world. So, today, And for the next three weekends, we're going to drill down deeply into what it means for us, both personally and as a church, to follow Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, and to be on mission with Jesus. You'll recognize these lines from Charles Dickens A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epic of belief, it was the epic of doubt, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Well, when we examine the church of Jesus Christ at the dawn of the 21st century, much of the same could be said. According to some, it is the best of times. And according to others, it is the worst of times. The optimistic see America in the throes of spiritual revival. In this generation, Promise Keepers was filling football stadiums all across the country with men. I was there in Cowboy Stadium in Dallas, Texas, 70,000 men. On their feet in praise, listening to two days of nonstop Bible preaching, many of them recommitting themselves with tears to becoming godly husbands and fathers and churchmen. And this is the generation of the mega church. When I was a student in Bible college, a church of a thousand was a huge church. Now there are literally scores of. Churches ranging in size from 10,000 to over 40,000 in cities across the land. 4,000 new churches are being started each year. That is nearly 11 new churches each day. And it's not just in the United States. Some of the world's largest churches are in South Korea. The largest church in history is the Yoido Full Gospel Church. Founded in 1958 in South Korea with five members today, there are nearly a million members. Some years they have averaged 10,000 new members each month. And perhaps the largest church in the world today is the underground church in communist China. Surely this is the best of times. But others would disagree. They're more pessimistic. Since 1960, the U.S. population has grown by 54% while church growth has been only 43%. A new poll by the Barna Group says only 2 in 10 adults under age 30, 2 in 10, believe the church is important. And people show up only once every four to six weeks in worship assemblies and consider themselves to be regular attendees. As a result, Americans are biblically illiterate. 46% of the unchurched in America could not answer the question, why do we celebrate Easter? And what about the moral climate in America? George Gallup has said, In America, religion may be up, but morality is down. 69% believe there are no moral absolutes, and this is well reflected in the book called The Day America Told the Truth. 74% said they would steal from those who wouldn't miss it. 64% said they would lie if it didn't cause any real damage. 53% said they would cheat on their spouse if they knew it wouldn't be discovered. 50% said they'd do nothing on the job one day in five as standard operating procedure, and 41% said they would use recreational drugs. The day America told the truth about morality. Not a pretty picture. And suicide is on the rise in 2009. For the first time, the number of suicide deaths surpassed the number of deaths in motor vehicle crashes, and it continues to rise. So how do we as committed Christians view all this? Is it the best of times, or is it the worst of times? John Nesbitt has commented on these two contrasting views in his book, Megatrends 2000. He wrote that two of the most powerful trends in America for the decades just ahead are these two. This is what we can anticipate. Number one, a religious revival reaching into the third millennium in which baby boomers and busters will begin to seek spiritual life in organized religion. That sounds like we may be on the threshold of the best of times. But then, but then there's something that Nesbitt calls the triumph of the individual where each person will place him or herself at the center of the universe and strive for that which will empower and enlighten them. Well, for anyone who understands biblical Christianity, these two trends are contradictory. That is, you cannot be truly spiritual and at the same time be exalting yourself. Jesus said it this way in... Luke 9, 23 and 4, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So is it the best of times or is it the worst of times? I think it's both. Never has there been a time of greater opportunity for the church of Jesus to reach and teach people than today. Yet, never has there been a time of such peril. For while men and women today are indeed seeking spiritual life, they're seeking it on their own terms rather than what is revealed in the Word of God. They are seeking it according to their own standards rather than the truth that is in Jesus. Christianity is growing, but is it growing into the image of the sacrificial servant Jesus, or is it growing into the image of a contemporary self-serving narcissist? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, this is called having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So what's the solution? What will produce the desired changes? What will truly make things better? What will make the difference in your precious family? What will make the difference in our community in the days ahead? What will make the difference in our nation, in this world, in the 21st century? Well, bigger government, better health, the defeat of terrorism. A more robust economy? Advanced technology? How about more entertainment options? None of these will touch the heart. None of these will cleanse the soul. None of these will secure the eternal destiny of a person. So what is it then? Well, friends, it's our theme. It's our newly minted mission statement as a church. It's you and I being disciples, true disciples, and you and I being committed, truly committed, to making disciples. That's it. Disciples making disciples. That's the foundation that Jesus laid, that was his purpose in coming. It's his method for redeeming humanity. It's the only way to save us from the consequences of selfishness and sin. And his foundational strategy was he began by calling a handful of men to be his disciples. He would pour himself into them for three years and then he would turn them loose on the world to start a grace revolution that continues to this very day. And the genius of the strategy of Jesus Christ is the only reason why there is any love or joy or peace on this planet today. It all started in Matthew 4, 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, the model for discipleship goes back to Old Testament times. Prophets would entrust their message to a band of followers who would preserve it and spread it. But a disciple of Jesus was different. He was not merely a pupil who learned. He was attached to his teacher. He didn't merely receive instruction. He imitated the life of his teacher. He became like his teacher. As Jesus said in Luke 6:40, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher, and Jesus broke with tradition. When he called Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and the others, it just wasn't done that way. Previously, it was up to disciples to choose their own rabbi. Disciples chose their teacher, but Jesus initiated the invitation to his disciples. He chose them. He called them, and a disciple of Jesus was not spoken of as just disciple or the disciples, but rather as His disciples. And that implies ownership. That implies relationship. Jesus' disciples belonged to Him, and they enjoyed a personal friendship with Him. And Jesus' disciples were attracted to Him because of His person. They followed Him for who He was, not just what He taught. And the other thing... Is distinctive about Jesus' call to discipleship here. Jesus did not call his disciples to just listen and think and discuss and philosophize and intellectualize and debate. He called them to action. He called them to do something. And what was it, you ask? Well, it was in our text. It's to be Fisher's Men, Peter, and Andrew had been scouring the sea hoping to catch fish, but from now on they would invest their lives in catching people. And the truth is, Jesus has called all of us to do this, and when we do this, we are advancing the mission that Jesus began. True disciples of Jesus have a conscience about making. Disciples, But here's the problem. Many Christians aren't concerned about fishing for people. And many churches aren't concerned about fishing for people. Some professed disciples will go a lifetime without making a disciple. Some churches gave up on this mission a long time ago. Now they will accept the fish if it jumps into the boat by itself. But they're not willing to cast their nets and to pull them in. In far too many churches and in the lives of far too many Christians, we talk about making disciples. We talk about reaching the lost. We talk about fishing for men, but the sad reality is few intentionally do it. So what happens? What happens if disciples don't make disciples? What happens if fishermen don't fish? Well... One thing that happens is they fuss. In Mark chapter 9, that's what happened to the disciples of Jesus. They temporarily lost their focus. And when they did, they began to argue over who was the greatest. Disciples who are not concerned with fishing for men. Disciples who are not concerned with making disciples. They get concerned about power and control and prestige and territory. And if you want to see a church that is not accomplishing its mission, look at a church that's fussing. And if a church is not fishing, it's probably going to be fussing. And when a church is characterized by bickering and nitpicking and hard feelings and hurt feelings and whining and complaining, it has lost its focus. Lost its focus on making disciples. And where you find a fussy, divisive, thin-skinned, negative, gossipy Christian, you know he or she is not thinking very much about making disciples. But when a church is united together behind the purpose of reaching people, then all kinds of wonderful things begin to happen. And a spirit of love and unity and expectancy is evident and you can feel the vibe. I felt it here in the afterglow of our 200 baptism weekend and I felt it the week we packed over a half million meals for starving Haitian children. And I felt it on our Try the Tithe weekend when our offering was a quarter of a million dollars. And I felt it when we received the report that our missionary partnership in India had resulted in over 4,000 baptisms and over 40 new churches. And I feel it the weeks that in this room we have over 1,000 kids in vacation Bible school then breaking out and being taught the stories of Scripture. And I feel it every Easter when I walk into the Ford Center and look around and know that more than half of our audience at the Ford Center is our guests. And I feel it on Monday nights when our support groups meet. And I feel it when I look over here in this 1045 service and I see the north side of our worship center populated with teens teens. Or Thursday noon when the atrium is filled with senior adults. And I feel it every time someone walks down the steps to this baptistry and I hear your applause. But in too many places, in too many places the church has lost its focus on making disciples. And when that happens, they begin to squabble internally. And if we're not making disciples, let me tell you what's going to happen. We'll monkey around picking the fleas out of each other's hair. Let's not waste valuable time and resources on issues that have no eternal significance. Churches should not be fussing. They should be fishing. Well then, if they're not, what else happens? Well, they not only fuss, but they also flee. In Matthew 26, Peter ran away after he had denied Christ for the third time. Peter fled when things got rough. He checked out in the face of active persecution in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter lost sight of his goal. But if we remember our purpose, to be fishers of men, if we concentrate on that, we can overcome the challenges that come our way. But if we aren't committed to making disciples, we're going to shrink back. We're going to shrink back from challenges. We want to play it safe. We'll want to fish too close to shore. And we won't get as much of a catch there. Jesus may want us to launch out into the deep and let down our nets. But if we're not really committed to fishing, we'll be intimidated and run the other way. In, uh, in Wyoming a few years ago... The timber wolf population got out of hand. It was so bad that the government offered $500 bounty on each timber wolf that was captured alive, and that turned two men, Sam and Jeb, into bounty hunters. Day and night, they roamed the mountains looking for wolves. Well, one morning, Sam woke up to see that they were surrounded by 50 wolves with piercing eyes and teeth bared, so he nudged his friend. awake and said, Jeb, wake up, we're rich. <laughs> well, Sam was seeing things from a unique perspective. And friends, when we focus on making disciples, we'll see things from a new perspective too. And we'll handle challenges differently. We'll handle problems differently. We won't run away from challenges. Some folks want a safe, quiet church, and they run away to another church if there's any kind of big initiative. Some people want to flee when anything threatens to move them out of their comfort zones. If there's any kind of movement or change, they get restless. So, when fishermen don't fish, they fuss. When fishermen don't fish, they flee. And then, thirdly, they forget. Revelation chapter 3 Jesus confronted the church in Sardis that although they had a reputation for being alive, they were dead. And he told them to wake up. And the application for us as believers and as the church is to be vigilant, not lax, not indifferent. So I want to ask you this morning, has your fire gone out? Do you remember your mission? Have you got a conscience about making disciples or have you forgotten about fishing? The Lord admonishes us to wake up, to remember our mission To prioritize fishing for men because time is running out for people, death stalks. The days are numbered for so many in our world. And we know that Jesus will come in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So let's get involved in the lives of those who don't know the Lord. And let's gain entrance at whatever level we can. Remember to use the time now to share what you can of Jesus. To be an ambassador for him because you may not have many opportunities left. Ask the Lord to revive your loving concern that all men and women and young people may hear and come to a knowledge of the truth. Don't sleep in the light. Wake up. Don't drift into forgetfulness. Well, finally, when fishermen don't fish, they forsake. In John 21, that's what happened. Peter And Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and a couple of other unnamed disciples were all together on the seashore. When Peter announced, I'm going out to fish. And they all said, we'll go with you. After all Jesus had shown Peter and the disciples, after all the miracles they had seen, the dramatic casting out of demons... The healings, the bodily resurrections, the lives that had been changed. Peter and the other disciples seem to have forsaken their calling. They're going back to fishing for fish. (laughs) It was safer. It was more predictable. It was a whole lot less daunting than fishing for men. So... He's returning to his past. He's going backwards in life. And when fishermen don't fish for men, they forsake the things of God. Their wants become more important than God's purpose. Selfish desires become more important than God's will. If we don't fish, if we don't make disciples, We have a tendency to slip back into the old life. We lose our concern about lost people. And we lose the urgency of making disciples. And so, then it's easy for us to begin to miss worship assemblies, to forsake our time in God's Word, to be forgetful about prayer, To pass up opportunities to serve and give and witness to people and friends. If the church is rendered ineffective and stagnant, it will happen because its own people have lost sight of their reason for existing, to be disciples, making disciples. But listen, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking of Peter as a failed fisher of men. Peter regained his focus that day on the beach when he had a personal encounter with the risen Lord, and re- he reaffirmed his love for Jesus, and he reaffirmed his devotion to the purpose of Jesus, and he went right back into the city of Jerusalem where he denied that he even knew Jesus with a curse, and he stood up in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and he courageously preached one of the greatest messages of all time, and 3,000 became disciples and were baptized that day, and those disciples made disciples, and those disciples made disciples, and that is why you and I are here today. So how can you and I implement this message, personalize this message? I've got three challenges to put in front of you this morning. Three action steps for you. The first one is this. Remain in Jesus. Abide in him. And he has promised, you will bear much fruit. I take it that means that if we abide in him, if we remain in him, we will instinctively be making disciples. If you commit yourself to be faithful to worship him, privately personally as well as in weekly assemblies there is a vitality that will be maintained and accelerated in your life but listen no one can do this for you but you no one no one can make you remain in Jesus abide in Jesus but you secondly get in a small group of some kind to accelerate your growth and to accelerate obedience-based discipleship in your own life. Church-wide, we are embracing what's called Discovery Bible Study. And in our small group network throughout this church, we're going to be doing the most delightful, enjoyable, and potentially deepening Bible study we have ever done as a church. It's going to raise our biblical literacy level as a congregation. And it's going to enrich the life of every person who is in a group of some kind. Thirdly, ask God to give you a burden for someone who needs to become a disciple of Jesus. You've got a circle of influence. You've got a sphere of influence. Identify those people initiate friendship with them, pray for them, find a place to serve, steward your resources, seize opportunities to invite people to our worship assemblies or to your small group. And listen, if you invite enough people, some will come. And if enough come, some of them will become disciples As we close this morning, I want to ask you to pray a prayer with me right now as we stand all over the worship center. Just stand to your feet, please, if you're able. And I want to lead us, I want to lead us in a corporate but very personal prayer of repentance. It's a prayer about us personally, individually, renewing our purpose as disciples, to make disciples. And then after I pray, we'll worship in a final song. And then this morning, if you have a decision to make about Christ or Crossroads, after we're dismissed here, if you'll just be seated, our section hosts will come to you. So all you need to do is just sit where you are as everybody else exits the worship center and we will come to you and talk with you. But right now, this prayer, with every head bowed and every eye closed, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to seek and save the lost. Thank you that he came for me. And not just me, but for every living Breathing person on planet earth. And Father, we thank you that you've called us to yourself in Him. And you've called us friends. We are disciples. Help us to be that indeed and not just in word. To become a Christian is to become a disciple of Jesus. Help us to be as committed in our discipleship as the strongest disciple that we've ever heard about or known in our lives. And Father, we pray that we would fulfill our purpose, our primary purpose as disciples to make disciples. Lord, from our lives, may may there be an ever-expanding circle of dynamic influence in how we live, what we say, and how we posture ourselves with people and... Lord, we just, uh, we do want to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, we repent of our forgetfulness and our fussiness, and we repent of the times that we've shrunk back or walked away from this calling. This morning, we embrace it warmly from our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.